wary of each other's militaries, addicted to each other economically. The complexities in the US-China relationship. Infamy in the UK. What a scandal at the BBC reveals about the network and the paper that broke the story. Plus, televangelism in Kenya, where divine revelations have proven deadly. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. A senior American official was in Beijing this past week to do something the U.S. and China rarely do these days, talk face-to-face. The Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, was out to reassure Chinese leaders that the world is, quote, big enough for both our countries to thrive. But beneath the diplomatic niceties lies a mutual suspicion that runs deep. Two governments fully engaged in a bigger battle of narratives. President Xi Jinping has said that Chinese media outlets should step up on the messaging. They need to, quote, tell China's story well. Beijing has also recruited foreign filmmakers to teach them how to better communicate with international audiences. In the U.S., most of the reporting revolves around the security threat, real or imagined, that China poses, such as over the status of Taiwan. There is far less discussion about the fact that the U.S. military, through its bases and its allies, is encircling China. The other thing that news consumers should do to understand this story? Follow the money. Two countries that are squaring up militarily happen to need each other economically. The U.S. and China continue their technological tit-for-tat. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is on her way to Beijing. She's got her work cut out for her as she tries to repair diplomatic relations. The U.S. Treasury Secretary went on a mission to Beijing this past week for talks that had the most modest of objectives. As she put it, Janet Yellen was out to establish person-to-person relationships with the Chinese to open ongoing channels of communication. As expectations for bilateral visits go, that is an extraordinarily low bar to meet in a conflict that has exceptionally high stakes. It's no secret that the China-U.S. relationship has been tense for a long time. The fact that communication, which ideally should be the goal of diplomacy at large, needs to be explicitly stated is not a great sign. It means that both sides are very anxiously aware of the stakes and of the grave dangers of miscommunication. The fact that they feel the need to do this is really an indicator that the relationship has hit a point where Washington feels it's dangerous. Um, Dangerous in the lack of communication, um, dangerous in terms of how distorted Beijing's view of Washington's desires has become. There's a real fear that the Chinese are convinced that Washington wants to force a war over Taiwan. Um, and the conviction among many in Washington that China wants to force a war over Taiwan. In the U.S., news coverage of China is often unidimensional, conflict-driven, and at times chauvinistic. Tough talk is necessary, but tougher actions are essential. News channels tend to let members of the defense and intelligence establishments, current 
and former ones set the narrative. U.S. intelligence leaders say China poses the most consequential threat to the nation's national security. Tonight, China's military declaring it's ready to fight. Let's bring in retired four-star General Jack. From Beijing's vantage point, President Xi Jinping's government looks across its borders and sees U.S. military bases all around it, including reports of a newly upgraded base in Australia that will house American long-range B-52 nuclear bombers, a country that is still dealing with the backlash over the COVID-19 pandemic, including criticism that came out of the White House, now sees the Americans meddling in Taiwan. And in the U.S.-led NATO-backed response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a war with no end in sight, China sees a precedent, a possible blueprint. China may be looking at this and taking lessons in terms of key points of leverage that Western powers might have over us in the event of invasion. Or if we attack Taiwan, we can expect this in terms of resistance. A motivated uh, population with high morale or willingness to defend itself can actually fend off a much larger force. In both cases, there's a question, can you actually hold it out in the long term or without eventually some kind of negotiation? The Chinese are famously pragmatic and transactional and definitely give more credence to actions than words. So Xi and his cohort are largely judging U.S. actions and the, its alliances in Asia versus Biden's words that <laughs> it is not trying to surround China. Xi is thinking, it looks an awful lot like you are trying to surround us and your words um, mean much less to me than what I see and what I can detect in your military efforts. And so China will point to the military bases in Japan or the Philippines or elsewhere as signs of this threat. The U.S. will view maritime actions by China or uh, incursions to Taiwan's air identification uh, zone as rising aggression and uh, this pattern of tit-for-tat escalation. Both sides are, are kind of caught in this loop, and the question is really, how can they get out of it? Knowing that China is up against it on the messaging, President Xi has demanded better of his diplomats and the state-controlled media. He says they must tell China's stories well. Beijing recently invited foreign filmmakers and producers to teach its government officials, academics and journalists, how to make the messaging more appealing to overseas audiences. In a world where there is so much suspicion about the renaissance of modern China, I think we can all do our small part to communicate the positive side of who the Chinese people are. They talked about how cinematic storytelling is far more effective when it focuses on individuals and their stories, rather than the typical Chinese production, grandiose films that celebrate the country's and the Communist Party's achievements. Among the ironies at play here, Beijing's diplomatic messaging, which has grown far more aggressive over the past few years, is known as Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. It takes its name from a Chinese film franchise that produced Rambo-like celebratory blockbusters. So there's always people in China who understand that these messages don't work and we should tell better individual stories. There are tons of moving stories in China of people who overcome poverty, of women who fight patriarchy and sexism, but to tell any of those stories, you have to admit that there's a problem in the first place. And the mood in China is so fragile under Xi 
that admitting the existence of a problem is politically risky. And so people always fall back to the politically safe thing and the easy thing, which is to repeat the same narratives even if they don't work. The wolf warrior tactic is one of incredible aggression and nationalism that China has reached a level of strength that no longer requires kowtowing to the West. I don't know how the BBC people got all this wrong information. You see, if you look at their track record, maybe you should not have total trust of what they say. You can see this in the way that Chinese officials abroad are becoming increasingly arrogant and hostile. Don't be naive. Condemnation. It sounds naive to say that's not doesn't, invasion. It doesn't solve the problem. The Chinese propaganda machine is known for its nimbleness and its ability to present multiple tactics at once and to course correct when there is a need. So they're also willing to try many other things. As Russia's war in Ukraine grinds on, China-watching journalists have taken to describing the country's rise as the dawn of a new Cold War. There is a big difference. China is one of the U.S.'s biggest trading partners. There's a mutual reliance there that never existed between the U.S. and the Soviet Union or Russia. That interdependence between powers that remain strategic adversaries means that this conflict presents economic dangers as well as military ones. For years, the U.S. assumed that it could manage China's rise by binding China tighter into the world system of trade and manufacturing, that China would become more democratic, more open as a result. This didn't happen, but China still became very tightly bound into the U.S. economy, underwritten by cheap Chinese manufacturing, by Chinese labor. Um, China's gotten to a point now where it is a real producer of technologically advanced goods in solar and electric vehicles, um, in cars in general as well. At the same time, there's been these constant military tensions. Taiwan, where I'm at today, is caught in between. It's a technology that produces semiconductors for both the US and China. I mean, there's a report by the Washington Post that even tiny semiconductors are present in the Chinese missiles pointed at Taiwan. In the meantime, they're present in iPhones, electronic vehicles, PS4s, and all sorts of other high-end electronics. And so it points to the odd interdependency of the two while there still has been conflict nonetheless. Both want to stabilize the relationship, dial down the heat as it were. Neither want this paranoia spiral to end in nuclear war, but neither country wants to be caught out. And I think it is this fear of being caught out that may very well lead to the sort of misunderstanding that makes one country act defensively out of this mistaken perception that the other country is being aggressive. And I think that's where the danger lies. And that does not create the best conditions for frank conversations. In the UK, the BBC is in a state of turmoil after a tabloid owned by Rupert Murdoch alleged sexual misconduct involving one of the broadcaster's most famous faces. Flo Phillips is here with more on a saga that has seduced the British media. Richard, it's never a good sign when a news organization's top story for days is about a scandal from within. 
And it's been a feeding frenzy ever since the story broke last week, both because of the allegations, the supposed paying for explicit images from a young person, and the TV host at the centre of it all, Hugh Edwards. He's a household name in Britain, often fronting the network's biggest news stories, like election coverage and the recent death of the Queen. The scandal broke at a difficult time for the BBC. This isn't the first case of a high-profile presenter accused of sexual misconduct. And it's yet further fodder for some in the Conservative government that want to reduce the BBC's funding, which comes from taxpayers. A police investigation into the allegations found no evidence of criminality. But the corporation's handling of the case is still being scrutinised, accusations that it waited too long before taking action. These are clearly damaging to the BBC. It's not a good situation. The British media have fed off this story as though there is nothing else more pressing to cover. And that's in part because of where it started, the Sun tabloid, the most right-wing of Rupert Murdoch's British outlets, which has often taken potshots at the BBC. The paper's handling of this story, repeated sensational front-page revelations, suggest a lack of scrutiny, and it's triggered plenty of criticism. We know where it started, but where does it end? The BBC's internal investigation has resumed. But as to the public's perception and trust in the once revered and widely modelled institution, now there's a story that doesn't sell. Thanks, Flo. For the past four months, Kenya has been dealing with the fallout of a shocking story. It centres around a televangelist, Paul McKenzie, who reportedly led hundreds of his followers to their deaths by telling them the world was coming to an end. Among the questions being asked in the aftermath, should the authorities have done more to contain Mackenzie's doomsday prophecies, most of which went out on the Kenyan airwaves? And if so, how would that square with the right constitutionally protected in Kenya to freedom of speech and religion? Questions that require answers because televangelism is on the rise in Kenya, where 85% of the population is Christian. The Listening Post's Nick Muirhead now from the Kenyan coast on the tragedy that's come to be known as the Shakahola Massacre. We've just left Malindi, a coastal town in eastern Kenya, and are heading inland to the Shakahola Forest. In March, news broke that a woman had killed her children here in order to please God. When the story broke, Joseph Yeri was one of the first journalists at the scene. We were first called here by the police. We were informed that there were two bodies, two bodies of children buried inside here. Instead, we found bodies all over, mass graves all over. To date, more than 350 bodies and counting have been exhumed. They were all led to the forest by a televangelist named Paul McKenzie. He is thought to have told them that the world was ending and that in order to reach God, they would have to starve themselves to death. First children, then women, then men. Mackenzie said he would follow, but he never did. So tell me about Paul Mackenzie. What do we know about him? Initially, he was a taxi driver in Malindi until he formed his own ministry now called Good News International Ministries. That church, according to the believers who, who first went in, was just a good church. Miracles happened until 2015. Now, when he became a televangelist, uh, a pastor, the message started changing. He 
started introducing the issue to do with um, uh, prophecies and all these prophecies were broadcasted live on television. Tell me about Mackenzie's followers, those that followed him into this forest. They came from far and wide because Mackenzie had followers all over. So presumably many of those people would never have heard of Paul Mackenzie were it not for his TV channel. Correct. There's still an estimated 600 of Paul McKenzie's followers who are still missing in Chakahola Forest. One of them is a woman named Pamela Mukulasinga. She's from Bangoma. It's a county in northwest Kenya, the opposite end of the country, nearly a thousand kilometers from here. We've managed to find her son. He's living in Nairobi, so I'm off to the capital to meet him. <laughs> Televangelism is the use of media to communicate Christianity. The televangelists in Kenya often claim that they can perform miracles. I stand against those powers now. Deliver spiritual healing and guarantee prosperity. Typically in the exchange for donations which have made some televangelists very wealthy and influential. For some viewers, often the most vulnerable, the promise being directly into their homes of divine intervention by these pastors proves irresistible. Paul McKenzie is what we would refer to as a charismatic authority. Because in order to be a televangelist, in order to hold the attention of a audience, no matter how big or small, you have to have a particular kind of charisma. Comparing to other African uh, televangelists, you can tell that uh, the rest of the African televangelists tend to go the prosperity way, and uh, Paul Mackenzie goes the mystical way. <laughs> When mystery kicks in, then, uh, you know, somebody is believed to have information or news or power that other people don't have. And so that um, occultic, uh, mystical element is what really endeared him to a lot of people. Pamela Mukalasinga's son, Rogers Shibuse, says that she would spend her days watching Mackenzie's Times TV channel and was captivated by his sermons that promised spiritual healing. She thought he could help her daughter who was suffering from mental health issues. This time last year, Shibuse's mother, his sister, and her three-year-old daughter left home to join the televangelist. Okay. The main reason my mother followed Mackenzie's preaching was my elder sister's illness. During his TV sermons, Mackenzie would often use the Bible and a specific oil to heal people. So my mother thought he might be able to help my sister. That was her main motivation. If it wasn't for his TV station, my mother never would have heard of someone like Mackenzie. When religion comes under the agency of media, then uh, media transforms that religion. And so perhaps uh, for people like uh, Paul Mackenzie, media tended to give them uh, some kind of reputation and uh, cred credibility. <laughs> Paul McKenzie's message would have first started out as what we would consider an instance of religious diversity, right? Because it doesn't just start off as an end of times. We then see it moving into a space of deviance. Education is evil. 
and then later on we see it moving into a space of danger. Lakini shetani amedhihirika katika roho ya uke zaidi. Hallelujah. Now, it's difficult to predict what the progression will be because not all diverse iterations of a mainstream religion will become deviant and not all deviant iterations of a mainstream religion will become dangerous but sometimes they do the question now is at what point should the kenyan authorities have intervened and could they have done so while upholding mckenzie's constitutional right to freedom of thought and religion the Communications Authority is the body responsible for regulating broadcast media in the country. This past April, it suspended Mackenzie's TV channel, but only after the Shakahola story had broken. And even then, it was mostly for administrative non-compliance. Little of the content it reviewed broke the rules. I asked the Director General how his organization monitors this kind of content. We use a system that logs the information. But when you have 320 TV stations, for you to make sense of that content, the technology we have is that somebody has to sit down and listen through or watch to be able to conclude uh, the nature of that particular content. That's why the complaint mechanism is much better. If somebody sees something and becoming, then they're able to report, then we can now go specifically to track down that specific uh, broadcaster. The problem I see with that mechanism is that you are relying on viewer feedback, but often the viewers of these channels are the people that are being radicalized. Yes. Yeah. Do you not see that as an issue in the system? It's really a problem, but then our responsibility is not to regulate content of a theology theological nature, unless it's so obvious on the face of it. Content that we looked at, we did not see a direct link with, with, with the massacre. Do you not think that, yes, there may not be a direct link to Shankarhola, but, but that problematic content in the miracles and the prosperity preachings, yeah. do you not think that needs to be regulated? You know, the trouble with the issues of religion and faith is exactly that, faith. <laughs> and that's why when you allow freedom of religion, is to just allow people to make sense of life in the way they see best. So the risk of going that route is that you end up being a policeman in people's conscience. But that balance has to be struck. And that's a really big challenge for us. Paul McKenzie is now in jail and faces multiple charges. But the media environment in which he thrived and the constitutional rights that protected him remain the same. Kenya is 85% Christian and televangelists wield enormous influence. So politicians wanting to stay in power are unlikely to challenge the hegemony of these TV pastors and their armies of faithful followers, even if that leaves an untold number of vulnerable people at risk. I left Nairobi for Malindi to search for my mother. When I got there, I found one of Mackenzie's followers who had been rescued. They told me they had seen my mother and my sister. My sister and her child had been tied up until they died and were buried. Having seen all this, my mother ran deep into the forest. I have been trying to find her ever since, but to this day, nothing. And finally, to Twitter and the platform's tumultuous year under new owner Elon Musk. The competitors smell blood. 
primarily threads, an app launched last week by Mark Zuckerberg's company Meta, which also owns Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. Within a week, threads had racked up 100 million users, making it the fastest-growing app of any kind ever. Musk is struggling to be a good sport about this. His lawyers have threatened to sue Meta for intellectual property theft, accusing them of being copycats, basically. That might be a bit unfair. Both apps are run by gazillionaires with lousy track records on hate speech and misinformation, but Threads will need some time to catch up with Twitter on that front. We'll leave you now with the Canadian internet comic Stuart Reynolds and the kind of promo video that Threads should put out, but never will. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Welcome to Threads. If your current social media platform has turned into a dumpster fire, you'll be pleased to notice that our dumpster is brand new and barely smoldering yet. Some microblogging sites are run by entirely unlikable billionaires, not ours. Threads is run by a billionaire who, I guess looks pretty great by comparison. Do we harvest your data? <laughs> yep. But don't worry, we own Facebook and Instagram, and we already know your search history. Yes, you should get that rash checked out. You asked for a social media platform that was somehow both better than Twitter and exactly like it. And we were like, I don't know, how about this? Welcome to Threads.